I want to welcome all of you here again this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are gathered each and every Lord's Day by His grace and for His glory to magnify the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We do pray that you have come to do exactly that today. I trust that you have met with the Lord already, that you didn't come this morning stone cold. If you did, repent and come fired up next week. Come with your heart set on the living God. Our brother uh, Frank said that uh, we ought to, he prayed for preaching in the spirit this morning. And uh, I was looking at that very passage this morning, not only preaching in the spirit, but singing with the spirit. Brethren, it shouldn't be a humdrum, boring act. It's an act of worship. That means our hearts should be aflamed and engaged with the Almighty. We're not here for entertainment. We're not here to please each other as such. We've come into the presence of the Almighty to magnify His name, to bring Him glory, praise, honor, and all the things that we hear being shouted in the regions of glory in the book of Revelation. Uh, so many people today are hooked on Revelation because it's the last days. We've been in the last days since Christ came. Revelation is a book of worship. And it speaks forth of the glory of Christ Jesus. It begins with a vision of him. And then we're taken right into the very throne room. After he speaks to his churches, we're taken up into the glories of heaven to magnify the King of Kings. It's a book about worship. And our hearts, when we come, should be engaged. So I hope you've come engaged this morning. If not, I hope the Lord will put you in that gear as soon as possible. <clears throat> I want to say, as uh, before I begin preaching, I have... Another announcement, but I want to say with, with, with all of my heart, I had intended this very morning as I got into the message to, um, to give us several examples now of what we've been talking about for many weeks. And uh, as I unfolded more of the text, as I considered it carefully, uh, I've decided that next week we will do nothing but application what we've been looking at for many months. Nothing but application. I will be using some examples and illustrations from our own life here, and I will be using them from other real-life experiences of which I am aware. The issue of stumbling other Christians is rarely mentioned. That means it's something that's regularly happening in the churches of Jesus Christ. And it is something of which all of us, at one time or another, beginning right here behind the pulpit, have engaged in. And we need to know, understand, and repent of any and every word or deed by which we have stumbled God's precious sheep. So, next week... Uh, we're going to do something a little different. And I would ask you, I've, I've never done this before. 
But I would ask you to fast and to pray with me this week. Don't put it off. It's up to you. The decision is yours. But I urge you, if you will, so that we will profit as much as possible from what we're going to hear. Because we're going to look into the mirror of God's word and we're going to ask really hard questions and give really strong illustrations. So please be in prayer. At the very least, pray daily that Christ will meet with us. If you will, fast and pray with us. I want to, I, I want to tell you what has been burning in my heart. Turn to Psalm 119. Among other things, there's a number of fires going on in there. But Psalm 119 says something that the very first time it really hit me. I thought about how remarkable so many of the prayers in the Psalms are. Now, we don't believe that we can command God. But when the Puritans would read this, they would say things like, here's an example of men crying out to God, even pleading, even commanding him. Psalm 119, verse 126. It is time for thee, Lord, to work. It is time for thee, Lord, to work. For they have made void thy law. All you have to do is if, if you have the nerve, if you have the stomach, is just watch what's going on in the news and you will understand how this nation is doing its dead level best to stand against the God of heaven and his word. What he commands about men and women, what he commands about marriage, what he commands about government. This nation is in rebellion against almighty God. And many of us have sat by and just said, oh, it's really bad. I hope somebody does something. Maybe a political savior will come and help us. What people need to do that profess Christ is to be on their faces before God, repenting of their sins, our national sins, our congregational sins, our city sins, our personal sins, and pleading with God to have mercy on this virtually God-forsaken nation. Wake up. The people that want their way are warring against God. We need to be crying out to the Almighty and not with guns or bombs, but declaring full war against what we are seeing and pleading with God both to give us the power for holy life and the power to preach the gospel in a dark and apostate country. Now, if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, we're going to read a smaller portion of it today. We've got so many visitors. Um, I'm praying that uh, we won't leave you in the dark We've been covering quite a number of things. We've been digging down deep into the scriptures regarding the matter of conscience, the matter of conscience. And we are in that matter of conscience called stumbling blocks. We want to understand better 
the issue of stumbling blocks because Christ himself says it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and have you thrown into the midst of the sea than to cause one of God's little children to stumble into sin. That's a serious matter. That is a serious matter. Now, that being said, <clears throat> we're going to read verses 13 through 15 of Romans 14. By the way, if you were visiting with us and you have little ones, um, you will see that we have our little ones. We have our children with us. And we thank God for them. Children, we do love you. And it's one of the reasons you're in here sitting with us. <clears throat> At the same time, they're learning how to sit quietly and to work through um, relatively long services. Compared to some of the three to seven hour services of the Puritans, this is, uh, we're very highly abbreviated. But for our American attention, very often 15 minutes stretches us. So I do pray that as we come to this this morning, as your little ones uh, need a break, you can take them right through that door. We have a large screen in there and uh, you can continue watching. <clears throat> and we also have a nursing mother's room. And last thing, if you have a cell phone, would you please check it right now and make sure that it's on mute? We would deeply appreciate that. Now, if you'll stand with me, we're going to read Romans 14. Verses 13 through 15. Precious brethren, these are God's words. We come to hear from him. Let's make sure we hear him. Verse 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Amen. Amen. Let's lift our voices in prayer. Lord, we praise thee this morning. Thy word is clear. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. We want to glorify thee. We want thee magnified. Lord, Moses in the old covenant said, I don't want to go. I don't want to travel unless thy presence goes with us. Oh, let me see thy glory. Father, should not we who live and drink deeply in the new covenant gospel, I pray that our hearts would say, I don't want 
to walk in this life except thou go with me. Except thy presence fills my soul, fills my heart. Oh God, we want thy presence here. We are thy gathered temple. We are the Holy Spirit's tabernacle. Oh, blessed lover of our souls, come into thy garden. Come and love thy precious one, thy eternally loved one, thy blood-bought one. Love us, O oh Lord. We need thy love. Our love for thee and our love for one another doesn't carry us very far sometimes. But thy love for us sustains us Every day. Oh God. May we know the power. Of thy spirit. And of thy love. Moving in this place. We want our hearts. Stirred. By thy word. We want. The truth. Shining brightly. In our hearts. In our minds. We want to think. We want to speak. We want to live. According to thy blessed word. Capture us by thy spirit. Help us to devour thy word. Help us, Lord, if we're tired, if we're distracted, if we're stony, if we're cold. Please, O lover of our souls, breathe the fire of the Holy Spirit here in this place and in every true church of Christ throughout this world today. Oh God, may there be a glorious concert of praise and adoration in every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation on this planet. It is thy world. Thy kingdom is spreading regardless of what the wicked do. And now, oh God, may we be that praying body. Lord, may we be individually and gathered a troop of prayer warriors, uh, an army with banners, a, a thundering legion of prayers. And our city feels it. Our homes feel it. The world feels it. Now help us. Help this weak and feeble vessel today. Speak to these that are gathered. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Causing a believer to fall into sin is a dreadful sin. Being the occasion of a believer's sin is a shocking sin. Hindering the spiritual life of a believer is an appalling sin. That is what it means to put a stumbling block in some way. In someone's way. We have learned that the Lord Jesus said. Who shall, Whoso shall offend one of these little ones. Which believe in me. It were better. It were better. 
it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Would the Lord of life say something that violent? He did. That's not the Jesus many people worship. They don't stand in awe of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They have lost all sense of reverence. And to cause his children to sin is something that he speaks plainly about here in very graphic language. It were better for someone to have a millstone hanged about his neck and that he were drowned a horrible death in the depth of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses. Now, again, for those of you who have not been with us, the word offense here does not mean something that somebody says or does that gives us displeasure or that angers us. The Greek word used here and throughout the New Testament, when you see that word offense, very often means causing someone to sin, causing someone to fall into sin. Woe! When Jesus pronounces that woe, we should sit up and listen. Woe unto the world because it's a place that stumbles others into sin. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man, that person. By whom the offense cometh. Beginning with me, I ask everyone in this room. Do you believe that Jesus is the God man and that he just said it would be better for you to die a wretched death than to make one of his children sin? If you do then we need to take very seriously what follows because it's our nature in the flesh to sin and we're all adept at letting that fire that burns in us burn in someone else. The God-man, Jesus Christ, pronounces a double woe on causing a believer to sin. For that reason, Paul is very careful in dealing with this subject. Very careful. He is gentle. And yet at the same time, he is firm. He is guiding a divided congregation through that division toward unity.
Our message is entitled, The Dreadful Sin of Stumbling a Believer. This is part nine. May our Heavenly Father help us to comprehend with all saints the breadth, length, depth, and height of the love of Christ. And may the Holy Spirit open the eyes of our understanding for the glory of God and the good of His people. We've had one heading for several weeks now. It is there on your outline. What are the Holy Spirit's primary lessons in chapter 14? We have not been going line by line, word by word through this chapter. It is a more of a summarizing exposition, if I can say it that way. But let me cover, especially for those of you who have not been with us, what Paul has been building up to. Verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. The primary point is Christ's congregations are usually made up of strong and weak consciences. There's variety. There is, in the best spiritual sense, diversity. And God ordains it that way. But it's because it's his school. It's his nursery for maturing his people. And if, if our age is characterized by anything from our culture to many of our churches, it is immaturity. <clears throat> we are here, strong and weak, to learn from Christ and how to walk with him. Verses 3 and 4 God receives his children, whether weak or strong. Verse 5, all believers must be fully persuaded of why they believe what they believe. Or stay out of the controversy. Listen, learn, study. But be fully persuaded before you assault someone else's conscience about the matter. Verses 5 through 9, Jesus alone is the Lord of his people and of their consciences. We couldn't have a better Lord. Satan's not a good Lord. But many, especially again in our day, seem to be more set on obeying their flesh than Christ. And that means we're helping to serve the enemy's purpose and helping him battle against truth. Verses 5 through 9, Jesus alone is the Lord of his people and of their consciences. I, Pastor Clarence, The two of us as the elders of this congregation are not the lords of your conscience. You are not the Lord of ours. Neither are you the lords of one another. Those consciences are Jesus Christ's blood-bought possession. Verses 10 through 
Be careful. Walk in love. That's what he's commanded. In verses 10 through 13a, all believers will give account of their lives to Jesus Christ in the day of judgment. This is one of the reasons. If we take all of these five steps that he comes to this notion that we take up today, we must not let our liberty destroy a weaker brother. He's been building up to this issue of stumbling blocks. And we began this heading last week. We only made it through two of the subheadings. The first one was this. Verse 13a, the first part of that verse, means this. Stop illegitimately judging. Stop illegitimately judging. Now, the first half of the verse says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. Paul was not rejecting every act of judgment. We spent some time on this last week. We don't need to go back over all of it. But the fact of the matter is, you don't go through a day where you don't judge. It is impossible to be thinking creatures in God's world and not judge something every day. I like this. I don't like this. This is good. This is bad. This is wicked. This is holy. You do it all day, every day. Very often, we're, we're running on cruise control. We're looking at things and not even stopping to think. Is this good or bad? But we, we almost instantaneously get a sense, well, avoid that one. Go that way. You judge every day. We're talking about illegitimate judgment. You and I are not the judge and jury. Jesus is the judge. And we are to know what his judgments are. And then we are to look at things through his spectacles. When we don't, we will misjudge sooner or later. Sooner or later. So Paul was not rejecting every act of judgment. We evaluate things all the time. Jesus himself said, judge not according to the appearance. Uh, You know, if we believe that, half of the controversies we ever got in or conclusions we drew about other people, we wouldn't draw. You hear that? If you're sleeping, this is a good time to awaken (laughs) nap later judge not according to appearance what does it mean don't judge just by looking at something you don't know the the circumstances you don't know the context i will use myself as an example suppose you saw me coming out of one of these little convenience stores like you see at a gas station, you saw me walking out with a six-pack of beer. About 25 years ago, you would have. I never drank in my life, and I still don't. 
So what was I doing walking out of that store with a pack of beer? Oh, some of you would know. He's a hypocrite. Couldn't take any time to come to that conclusion. I knew, I knew he wasn't what he was talking about. I knew he, I knew it. By the way, that means you have a problem that you should have dealt with a long time ago. And what was I doing? Well, believe it or not, it was the first and only time in my life I've bought a six-pack. Why did I do that? The day before, my father, who I dearly loved, he was a lost man. He was an alcoholic. Slipped at a boat landing and knocked a hole in his head that went all the way to the skull. He wouldn't let anybody help him, so the police had to come and arrest him, put him in jail till my mother came and picked him up and brought him to the house. She wanted to take him to the hospital. He would not go. And it was a bad wound. It was a really bad wound. He came out of the dark, and when I saw him, he, he looked like a cadaver. He was... He'd lost so much blood. It was just remarkable. He was covered with it. It was in the bed. It was, it was a mess. My mom had given up trying to help him. I said, okay, dad, let's go to the hospital. I'm not going. Now, when Lou Pollard said something like that, usually backed up just a little bit. He'd been a sergeant. And when he barked, it took a couple of layers of skin off. I said, Dad, you've got to go in. That's a serious wound. It's down to your skull. Mm -mm. So I was going to wait him out. He went back to bed. A few hours later, he got up and he said, I'm really hurting. I said, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I don't have anything in the house to drink. Sorry. I said, you want to go to the hospital? If you get me something to drink, I'll go. I said, I want your word on that. He said, I'll go. I'll be back in a few minutes. And I brought it to him. He put his clothes on, got in the car with me. I took him to the doctor. The doctor pulled the makeshift gauze bandage off of his head. He was like, uh, why wouldn't this guy brought to the hospital? <laughs> One of the first things out of his mouth. This is a serious wound. I said, listen, I've been up all night and I got him here. Please sew him up. <clears throat> That's what I was doing. It wasn't my desire to do so but if I was going to get him stitched up and he wouldn't wouldn't be full of infection in the next couple of days because that's what the doctor was really upset about he'd gone to over 24 hours with a gaping wound in front of his head down to the skull I said well <sighs> probably everybody I know is going to see me but I'm going and I went and purchased it 
and I got my, my goal. Now, if you'd have just seen me, you'd have drawn your own conclusions, but you didn't know I was trying to save somebody's life and get him into a doctor. You don't know that about a lot of things that you see. You don't know that about a lot of things that you see. And before you start evaluating and judging, you need to pray. And you need to ask God if this is something worth pursuing. If it bothers you, here's what love does. It goes to the person and says, would you explain to me what happened? That's what Christianity does. Now, when you keep a little grudge inside, or when you keep that little, that little thing in there that it's like, I knew that, oh, I knew what they were like. Oh, yeah. You are giving ammunition to Satan to pull off what he wants to do. And the time will come when you're going to see that person and something is said about them, and you're going to believe it because you've got a lie already burning in your heart. That's evil. It's also anti-Christian. You will believe anything about anybody that you have a predisposition to dislike. Once you put on the glasses of prejudice, you're not going to get the story right. And you're going to make decisions that you will believe are right. And you'll just be making the matter worse. Are we connecting? I sure hope so. Don't judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Make sure you've got enough information to make an informed decision. A decision according to righteousness. Well, how do we do that? <laughs> we must evaluate people, as I said last week, and evaluate things by a proper interpretation of Scripture. Number one. Number two, a proper understanding of the situation. And number three, a proper application to the situation. If you don't take that seriously, if you were not even aware, I can tell you all along the path of your walk. You have been throwing stumbling blocks towards people. What's worse is when you don't have a good interpretation of Scripture, you don't have a good understanding of the situation and you therefore don't make a proper application. What is worse Is that this dishonors Jesus Christ. The blood shed for you was to pardon your sins. How dare we bear enmity against somebody else and what we think is their sin. This is not Christian. Are we, are we tracking together? And we must submit our minds to Scripture with these three questions. Number one, when we come to the Scripture to submit ourselves and say, this is the Word of God, oh, teach me, Holy Father, 
Oh, blessed Son. Oh, Holy Spirit. Open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. We have to come and we have to determine first what does it mean? What, I'm sorry, what does it say? What does it say? What does it say? Number two, what does it mean? And number three, how do I apply it? If you're not thinking in those terms, what conclusions are you drawing? I'm, I'm being just as honest as I know how to be. An awful lot of counseling wouldn't have to happen if people that said they were Christians just obeyed Jesus. Jesus tells you how to deal with issues. He tells you. Someone's sin against you? Biblically defined sin? Or is it just something you don't like? Has somebody sinned against you? Go to them. Go to them first. Nobody else. Don't go talk to 10 people to get counsel about how to deal with that person. We don't start with the elders. The elders don't need to know. The elders are wanting you to grow. Grow up and deal with other people. If they're your brothers and sisters in Christ, you want to come to them with all grace and ask them, oh, why did you say this? Or why did you do this? Or I loaned you my lawnmower. <laughs> it doesn't work anymore. Uh, we got to talk about this. Don't go to your lawyer first. Are we getting this? This is Christ's command for his church. Go privately to people and talk to them. You'd be surprised how often things are a misunderstanding. Oh, did you really mean that? Oh, that's not what I understood. I thought you were saying this. What does it say? What does it mean? How do I apply it? You've got to be thinking in those terms. You've got to be thinking what the head of the church commands you. Oh, well, I don't have time to read the Bible. That's why your life looks like a ship in a storm. <clears throat> this is a vital matter, brethren. If you love somebody, you don't sit and hold a grudge for 10 years. You go talk about it. Oh, but uh, that might cause a problem. <laughs> it might. But then you work it out before Christ. And if you can't, then you bring somebody else in. You bring in a couple of witnesses to see if both sides have anything that's legitimate biblically to hold against the other. And finally, you bring it to the elders if that doesn't work. Do you see, you keep things private until you have to make them public. This is what the head of the church tells us. Other than that, we're going to be illegitimately judging people. We're not going to know what the scriptures say clearly. We're not going to understand the context of the situation. 
then we're not going to know how to apply the word of God to that situation. But very often we'll do it and we, we, are, we feel self-justified before God. Because I did something biblical. Oh, well, maybe not. Maybe very unbiblical. Well, secondly was do not stumble other believers. That's verse 14, verse 13b. That means the second half of verse 13. But judge this rather, says Paul. Stop, stop judging each other, but judge this, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now, this is serious. This is serious. <clears throat> now, what Paul means is this. Stop judging one another in conscience controversies. Again, let me say for those of you visiting us, we are looking at the subject of conscience controversies. We're not talking about primary doctrine, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the blood atonement of Christ. That's the heart and soul of what our fellowship is, is primary doctrine, the teaching of the word of God. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. <clears throat> then <clears throat> when we look at these things through the lenses of scripture and we understand the context of what's going on, then we can make a decision, an evaluation that's righteous. Up until then, we need to walk very carefully. You can destroy somebody's, you can, listen carefully, you can destroy somebody's name in just a few seconds with unthoughtful comments. You can destroy the reputation of a congregation. Now, I need to tell everybody here, do you understand what the enemy has been attempting to do here for over a year? To destroy the fellowship and the reputation of God's people. So Paul says, well, are you looking to judge something? <laughs> I can give you something. Here's what you need to judge. Judge whether you are causing other believers to stumble into sin. Are your words, are your actions causing someone else to sin? Remember, the stumbling block is first causing someone else to sin. Secondly, being the occasion, the cause, being the cause of someone else sinning. <clears throat> and then thirdly, very often you, you don't even know that you're doing this kind of thing, but you're slowing down their spiritual progress. When you hold up somebody's spiritual walk with the Lord, you're fighting Jesus. We can do things that destroy the walk of God's people. This is what Paul is trying to avoid in this chapter. Don't stumble other believers is what he's saying here. <clears throat> 
You want to judge? Judge whether you're causing others to sin. Judge whether you are the occasion for other believers to sin. By the way, you don't have to do any of these on purpose. You can cause people to stumble simply because you were you in a certain context at the wrong moment. Who you are and your words and your actions impact everybody around you. And you can do things that are completely natural to you, but might be very difficult for someone else's conscience. What does Paul say? Tell him to straighten up. Come on, man, grow up. No, he doesn't say that. He says, love them. Avoid causing them to stumble. They're my little children. Well, that brings us to number three. There's no food or drink that is unclean of itself. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Now, that is startling language for a Jew. Why? (laughs) Because Paul knows that the Old Testament scriptures repeat the words clean and unclean hundreds of times. This is one of the reasons we know that he's talking to the Jews. Gentiles generally are not talking about clean and unclean when it comes to the holiness of God. The words arise from God's ceremonial or ritual laws. Let us consider God's law very briefly here. This is a big subject, but I want to give you a concise overview. We understand that God's old covenant laws to be of three categories. Moral law, civil law, and ceremonial law. As our confession puts it, In chapter 19, paragraph 2, the moral law was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables. The four first containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. Paragraph 3 says, besides this law, the Ten Commandments, commonly called moral, that's the moral law, God has pleased, was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ. Now, when we say typical ordinances, in our language today, we would not get what they were saying. Typical here means types. These were ordinances that were types, figures of Christ to come. And that's the idea. We often say, ah, oh, well, you know, he, would, he preached for four and a half hours. That's typical of him. Right? That's not the idea. <clears throat> Moral duties. Now, <clears throat> these typical ordinances prefigure Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. And partly holding forth diverse instruction of moral duties all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation. Now, the time of Reformation there means when Christ came. They are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver who furnished 
with power from the Father for that end or that goal, abrogated and taken away. In other words, when Christ came, all of the ceremonial laws dried up, withered, and were gone because the old covenant was finished. They pointed to Christ. Christ came fulfilling those things. So we don't look to those ceremonial laws. We look to Christ. He's fulfilled it. The fourth paragraph in our confession says, To them also he gave sundry or various judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. Oh, what does that mean? Well, he, he gave moral laws. He gave ceremonial laws. <clears throat> and then he also gave judicial or civil laws. How do people deal with going to court with one another if such a thing uh, should happen? How do I deal when someone steals or, or destroys something that I own? What, what do I do about that? Okay, now what he's saying is that the nation of Israel, uh, what our confession is saying is that the nation of Israel, <clears throat> when it was uh, dragged into captivity and lost itself as a nation, that their government no longer existed. Right? Now there is an Israel today, they do have a government, but it's not the one we find in Scripture. Now, it says that their general equity only is our use. Now, what does that mean? Well, God's laws are just and fair. Men usually aren't in their dealings with one another. <clears throat> so the idea of general equity means this. As we attempt to build a nation, as we attempt to be maybe lawmakers in our nation, maybe you'll run for politics and go into office, where are you going to look to find righteous, righteous civil law? We can go back and look at what the Lord gave to Israel. So we can learn from it, though we are not part of that former government, nor does it exist. But we can go back and say, all right, the righteous God gave these laws. We can learn some things from these laws and use them as our or use them in our laws. We're not doing that anymore. It's just who can, you know, bark the loudest, has the most money, you know, and can can buy off the lawmakers or influence them. This is all wicked. So <clears throat> that's. The law, it was a body of law, it was moral, it was ceremonial, and it was civil. Now, our concern is the ceremonial law because that was Paul's concern here. Many of us hear the word ceremonial law. We don't have the faintest idea of what that means. We want you to know what that means. So Paul speaks of clean and unclean. That takes you instantly to the ceremonial law. <clears throat> He's speaking a language that the Jews easily understood. As a former Jew, he was still a Jew, but he was living under the new covenant, and he was not walking under the old covenant. 
But he knows what those Jews that have professed faith in Christ are struggling with. That's one of the reasons he uses the authority of Christ and says, I've been persuaded by Jesus Christ. Let's remember, Jesus Christ had long been crucified and risen again when Paul met him on the road to Damascus. The resurrected Christ knocked him down, called him, brought him to himself, made him a slave and and an apostle for the Gentiles. So when we're talking about, well, Paul saying, well, he persuaded me that nothing in itself is unclean. He's talking about the risen Christ. He's talking about revelation that he has received from the living Christ. And he says he's persuaded me. I don't have to walk under that clean and unclean label anymore. But I understand that my brother Jews do. So what does he scold them because they haven't gotten it yet? No. He loves their consciences. Clean and unclean point to God's holy purity and man's sinful filthiness. Therefore, something that was clean in those days was something pure and acceptable to God. Something unclean was impure and unacceptable to God. Now, if you've been brought up and you have millennia, thousands of years of your people believing this, how quickly do you think you're going to switch to something else? Can you feel feel a little bit of that? For those of you that have come out of various cultures, we're a fairly diverse group here. <clears throat> but those of you that have come from different cultures, maybe just different parts of the country, <laughs> you hear words from time to time. They're like, what does that mean? Never heard that. I mean, from Louisiana, you can say, ah, don't worry about it. It was Lanyap. What? Most people have no idea what you're talking about. A good Cajun would know immediately what you're talking about. All right? Paul, as a Jew, is talking to the Jews because he loves them. He loves their consciences. And he doesn't say, all right, you guys have to get on board right now. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. You need to get this because you're being a problem. He doesn't do that. He's very gracious. Paul, an apostle of Christ and the resurrected Lord Jesus walked together. Jesus had taught Paul the liberties of the new covenant. That's why he talks about it so much. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. There's nothing unclean of itself. This is a highly abused verse. And one that is usually misunderstood and rarely used in its context. So I urge you. When he says there is nothing unclean of itself you must recognize that he's talking about food and drink. He's not saying everything that anybody thinks, says, or does is okay. I mean, there are a lot of modern Christians that will go right to this verse and they will justify certain things that they say, do, wear, watch, 
by saying, Paul says, everything's clean. Now, if you, you got a bad mind on it, I'm sorry, that's your problem. Get out of my grace and my freedom. Are we tracking y'all? <laughs> I really want you to. I want you to get this. So Paul is in a context. Food and drink were not by their nature unclean or uncommon. God was setting this people apart. And he said, you can't eat this and you can eat that. You can eat that because it's clean. You can't eat that because it's unclean. It's unclean for them. It's not because that fish or that bird in and of itself was a problem, was unclean. I mean, when God finished creating all things, what did he say? It's very good. But he was setting a people apart and he wanted those people under his rule for every aspect of their lives. By the way, he hasn't changed that, but he's expanded the way we understand it. We're under Christ. Our, our covenant is not the old covenant. Now, look, Jesus taught Peter the very same lesson on a rooftop. Exactly the same lesson. Peter became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. <laughs> now, I know some of us feel like that when we're waiting for them to put the food on the table. <laughs> All right. But he fell into a genuine trance and saw heaven opened and certain vessel descending unto him. As it had been a great sheet at the four corners and let down to the earth. What a vision. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts and of, of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him. This is it. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat. It was not an animal rights organization at that time. God said, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. See, that's Paul's language. Common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again. The second time, what God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. All right. If God says it's clean, it's clean. Let me just jump ahead real fast and say, if you are a foul and filthy sinner, that's the only kind there is, by the way. Christ cleanses people just like you and me. That's right. He cleanses, cleanses, cleanses. Now, Paul knew that his Jewish brethren at Rome were thinking in these terms, just like Peter. No, this is unclean. I can't eat that. That's what's going on in the church. With good cause, they're saying, no, we're not eating that. And the Gentiles are like, mm-hmm. oh, man, these guys are too strict. Why? They've never been under that law. Never. They'd never been under that law. Let me tell you what. When you get somebody that comes to your congregation, 
Brother Clancy and I can speak as pastors on this. And people come to you from all kinds of backgrounds. Sometimes you get a brand new convert. They know almost nothing. Wow. They're usually a lot of fun. All right. Because it's like, teach me. <clears throat> but everybody else comes in bringing their, their, their baggage. <laughs> and, you know, well, brother so-and-so used to teach this. Well, that's great. If it's in harmony with the word of God, we can say we're, we're in agreement. But the problem is, Sometimes people come out of a congregation that was genuinely legalistic. Now, most people don't know how to use that word. You know, it, it doesn't mean uh, I'm not going to the movies. I think these are wicked. Oh, you're a legalist. I believe in modesty. <laughs> Go to the end of the table. We're not going to. You're a legalist. All right, we're not talking about that. Genuinely legalistic. If I'm not doing this or I'm not doing that, um... Now, I'm talking about conscience controversies, not plain commandments of Scripture. See, this is why you've got to make the distinction. Somebody's committing adultery. You have to talk to them about the sin of adultery. But you come in with, with a group that it's like the externals are the deal. And they're coming in and, and looking for a breath of grace. Well, <clears throat> The minute one of us says something that sounds like what they came out of, they're like, I'm gone. This is legalism. On the other hand, we have people that are in, you know, some of the um, what might be referred to as hyper grace congregations where everybody's doing just about everything that the world is doing. But it's my grace. It's my liberty. And as they read the scriptures, they go, I don't think we should be doing this. I'm, not, I'm, I'm pretty sure we shouldn't be doing that. I mean, it's just, Paul's really pretty clear on this. Um, and they, wanna, they want somebody that's going to jump on everybody. They, they want somebody to get up and preach. And I mean, preach hard about everything. Movies and cigarettes and drinking. Thump that Bible, Pastor. Right. Now, you get a room full of people from both groups, and you get confusion. Hello? <laughs> when you get, and, and when you, you bring new believers into that, they can get confused in a minute. Listen, young people. Be respectful. Listen to adults and hear what they've got to say. But be Berean. Go to the Word of God. And affirm that what you're hearing is in the word of God. Make sure that they've understood what was said. All right. What it means and how to apply it. Because people are just really happy to tell you how to live. Come to me. I'll tell you what you ought to wear, what you ought to watch, what you ought to listen to. Talk to me. Be gracious. Be kind. And, you know. There's safety in the multitude of counselors. Go talk to some of the more mature people in the congregation. Brethren, the churches are not in bondage to you and me, or they shouldn't be. You are Christ's blood-bought people. But if somebody steps out of the line of my things, well, you know, we, we very holily judge them illegitimately most of the time. This is a serious matter. 
This rips churches to shreds because this is to be a community of love. I don't mean gooey, sappy feelings. I mean obeying Jesus Christ, the head of the church, toward other people. When Jesus says, go talk to that guy, go talk to him. Get it worked out. Go talk to her. Get it worked out. When it's absolutely impossible to do, bring some others in. But that's what Christ commands. Well, Paul knew that his Roman, his Jewish brethren in the Roman congregation were struggling with clean and unclean. Why? Well, because uh, they, they were still in bondage to certain aspects of the law, especially the ceremonial law. You find that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So Paul wanted to unite a divided congregation, and he took a gracious and pastoral way of doing it. To him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. It is. Now, how can you say that? If you stop thinking about that, 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 that statement just a little bit, it's like, wait, Paul veering off the, the edge here? Why is he telling people, well, if you think this is wrong, it is wrong for you. Give you five seconds to think for a minute. What's he doing? He's respecting their conscience. Your mind is bound to the scriptures. Jew, I know and understand what you're wrestling with. And very often that's exactly the case with somebody we disagree with about something. Their mind is bound to an understanding of a verse, sometimes taken out of context, sometimes handled wisely. But sometimes our minds are bound to a particular thing, and it's because we read it in the Bible, and therefore we've applied it to our lives. And why isn't everybody else doing this? The transition for the Jews from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant was unclear and it was perplexing. Read the book of Acts. Read it repeatedly and see what kind of struggle there was going on between Jew and Gentile. So, conscience controversies arose. And they were rooted in Scripture. Now, when a couple of people are just arguing about what they feel... Find another discussion partner. <laughs> I mean, it's like that's going to be a waste of life. But when people have their minds bound, I, I, I will tell you, there's a passage in Timothy that talks about the, uh, those that don't take care of their own are worse than infidels. I was taught that that means the man is to be the breadwinner of the home. And I, I would look at that verse, and did I read it in my context? No. And I watched many people as family reform was beginning to gel 20, 25 years ago. 
30 years ago. As that was beginning to happen, that was a regular verse quoted saying, ah, worse than an infidel, not providing for his own. He's a man that should be out there working. Mama should be at the house. That's the way it is. And it's right here in the Bible. That's a completely wrong understanding of that passage. But it has bound so many consciences. It's amazing. It's all about taking care of widows. That's what the passage is about. Not about the man being the breadwinner. You can go for some other places for those kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is, there are roles for men and women. But we've got to read them well. We've got to understand them in their context. I mean, how many of you women do everything you can to be a Proverbs 31 woman, but you don't have any servants at the house. Hello? Is anybody listening? <laughs> May I touch your nerves? Please. Brethren, I, I, I mean, I've seen, and I've seen young women who are really earnest and want to follow the Lord, studying that passage, doing everything they can, and then when they get married, they find out they can't do all of it. In fact, they don't, they barely have any time to do most of it. Mm, where's your servants? Oh, well, I'm by myself. Mm -hmm. Well, the woman here has servants in a house full of children. You know, I mean, read in context. Understand what God's saying and respect the consciences of others whose minds might still be bound to a particular do or don't. Paul was so good at this. Now, when Paul says then to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean, he understands that the conscience is bound to an aspect of the word of God. But it has passed. And the Jews are having trouble with that, trans, that transformation. That transition. Even though he knows their consciences were weak. Even though he knew that he did not need to observe the uh, ceremonial law. He says, if your mind is saying, no, this is wrong. Then it's wrong for you. And don't. Do it. What's he saying in so many words? Don't go against your conscience. Not just any time. But is your mind connected to some portion of scripture? Now, sometimes there's just a, a cultural habit someone's got. I understand all this. But do you take any time to understand that person and why they're saying, listen, we've got issues here. We, we believe in families. We believe in babies. We have lots of them. All right. But everybody doesn't come to the same decision about how, when to have them. Oh, well, you've got to do this. And if you don't have my midwife. <laughs> Come on, y'all. Stop making controversies of conscience the law of God. Oh, well, I bake all of my bread. It's all whole grain. Those of you, oh, you're buying store. Oh, 
We need to pray for them. Hey, you should say that very seriously in your prayer because it's happened here. I don't make this stuff up, y'all. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I mean, homeschoolers get into trends, and that's the thing from God. Maybe not. How do you know? Just because homeschoolers are doing it, they're not the lords of your conscience. Jesus bought my conscience. He bought yours. It's his. We've got to feed it with his truth. And that's what we should discuss with one another. And as we grow, we're constantly going to be changing some things. I realize your position. I thought you were crazy. And I realize you were right. So Paul put the boundaries very wisely between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews, stop judging the Gentiles about what they eat. Stop it. And then he says, <laughs> and uh, uh, Jews... Uh, Gentiles, stop despising the Jews because they don't eat it. Stop it. When we read the Acts of the Apostles, when we read Paul's letters, we know that he stood with the stronger Gentiles in matters of the ceremonial law. Nevertheless, let us learn with the stronger Gentiles. Let us learn how to love someone that doesn't agree with us on conscience controversies. Now, it's crucial, as I said earlier, to understand the following point, and then we'll, we'll come to a close here. Hmm. Paul is talking about food and drink. Not every act, not every word that comes from sinful human beings. There are things that people do that are by definition of the scripture, sin. Right. Now, you and I have to make decisions because sometimes some things are not mentioned. So we have to have conclusions about those things that are not mentioned. I will use uh, something that you will think, how could you use that as an example? Uh, because abortion. Oh, we all know that's wrong. How do you know it's wrong? The word doesn't appear in the Bible. There's not a command, thou shalt not have an abortion. It does not exist. Now, how do you know that's sinful? You've got to sit down. Uh, uh, you're a woman hater, right? If you, if you say no abortions. Well, <clears throat> I can say the same thing about pornography. There's not a single verse in the Bible that says, do not look at pornography. That doesn't mean you can. That's right. And there's every reason why you should not. But it comes from principles that we learn from other commands of God. Abortion is murder. That's right. We can go through this and we look at the scriptures and the word of God says plainly that murder is a violation of the sixth commandment. But you see. There are a lot of Christians out there today. That will make the argument I made a minute ago. God says nothing about it in his word. So we have to take principles. And work through them carefully. Now we're back to where we, where we were a while ago. We need to interpret the scriptures well. We've got to understand the situation. 
then and only then can we apply it well to the situation. Pornography, <clears throat> thou shalt not commit adultery, is in the scriptures. Do not commit fornication. The word of God commands in the plainest language possible. <clears throat> the scriptures talk about nakedness, connecting it to shame and humiliation. Therefore, if that's the case, then when we're looking at people who boldly have no clothes, and are engaged in acts that are not marriage according to the word of God, we can conclude this is sinful. In fact, if, if, if a man looketh at a woman to commit a, a, adultery with her, he's committed adultery already in his heart, says the scriptures. What is pornography but looking? There are a lot of things that go with it. It's utterly destructive. It's not okay. Ever. Now we would say, well, the Bible teaches that it's wrong. True, but you have to qualify that. It teaches that abortion is wrong. Very often we make conclusions about other things just like that, putting a few passages together, and maybe we haven't done it well. But we demand somebody obey it. We need humility. The humility of Christ. We need humility and we need to study the word of God and we need to pray with all our hearts. Well, <clears throat> our next point was going to be love for our brethren must prevail. I will use that as an introduction to next week and all of the rest of the message will be application because we have to have that. Jesus Christ commanded that we love one another. Love is ultimately defined, Romans 13, by the law. And we'll talk about that briefly because we want as much application as possible. We might even have a couple of weeks of application. Because just some of those quiet moments in here this morning, you can put your finger. It's one thing to sit there and go, rah, rah, I just had my theological itch scratched. It's another thing when we come to the word of God and the Lord points out and shows us by his word um, that we have to do things that our flesh doesn't like. There's a series of questions, by the way, at the end of your outline, and I would urge you to read them and think about them this week. They, they come from 1 Corinthians and from Romans 14, as we have been studying. These are Summary questions, and we'll talk about how those work into conscience controversies. What, what do we do when somebody disagrees with us? What do we do when it's vehemently a disagreement? I'm absolutely convinced that this is sinful, and the person is absolutely convinced that it's not sinful. What do we do? How do we handle that? These are very real issues. I mean, even as parents... Some of you know what it's like to have brought your children up, taught them all these things, and all of, this, all of a sudden they're saying, you know, I don't quite buy this part. What bothers you? I've taught you for all these years. Yeah, I know, but I've been thinking about it. <laughs> I didn't used to think about it. I'm thinking about it. What are you going to do? They have a conscience, you know. You need to respect it. 
What? Yes. Yes. So, when you don't finish message, as I've done today, you have a lot of loose threads hanging. So I hope to knot those up next week. And we will get into applications. But brethren, this is as practical as it gets. Know what the word says. Know what it means. Apply it to your life. And don't get into various situations unless you understand the context. Be sure you've got the context. We want to honor the Christ who bought us with his blood. I was coming to a large gospel portion. But let me simply say, Jesus Christ didn't shed his blood for us to be a bunch of bickering children. But to be people who learn how to love like he loves. And walk together as he loved us. Holy Father, we thank thee for thy grace and mercy. We thank thee for thy kindness. We thank thee for thy holy word. It is the truth. And Father, please burn out all mouth religion from us. Please destroy, dissolve, mature us out of mouth religion and help us to live according to thy word. Help us to obey thee. Help us. Now, I pray for thy dear children here. These are thy blood-bought people, Lord. I pray that thou wouldst encourage their hearts today, build them up in the faith that they would come and think about all these things. Lord, I pray there are discussions throughout the day on these matters. And help them to see what thy word is teaching. Father, where I've confused one soul, help me to unconfuse it. Help me to speak more plainly, more clearly. And now, may it all be to thy glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Let's go and obey that.